But this morning we're going we're gonna to kind of prepare for Advent. Now that sounds really weird because Advent is means preparing for. So we're going to prepare to be prepared if you're all right with that. Uh, this morning I want to share faith fertilizers. And I want to do something here at the beginning that everybody gets to play, whether you're a hardcore Christian or somebody forced you to be here. Right? Everybody gets to play on this one. A little game of imagination. Imagine what life would be like if you had absolute, absolute confidence, unshakable confidence that God was with you in all situations, all circumstances. Absolute confidence. Right? Would you react any differently to temptations, to pain, suffering, and sorrow? Even good things. Right? If you knew that God was somehow, in some way, involved in all of it, right? And wanted to leverage it for good. That's, that's his goal for your life, is to leverage everything that you do, good and bad. He wants to leverage it to make it good. Ashes to beauty, right? Imagine if you had perfect faith, right? That there really is a personal God who knows your name. That there really is a loving God who walks beside you every day and promises never to leave you or forsake you, Right? Imagine a faith when things go bad, you would say, oh, well, I know that God knows what's going on. He understands my pain, and he will bring something good out of the bad if I trust him. Imagine a faith that when temptations come, you know he's going to show you a way so you don't have to cave in to that temptation, right? You know he's going to be standing there pointing, hey, here's the way out. Imagine a faith that when good things happen, like somehow your bank account has more than you owe, right? That that girl that's way out of your league is interested in you or that guy. It wasn't just fate, luck, or coincidence, right? That in some fashion, God was deeply, deeply involved, not controlling, but deeply involved because he loves you, right? Imagine a faith that gave you total peace that cast out all fear and all anxiety. Are you guys getting into this? Are you, are you imagining, right, if you had this kind of God or if you had a faith in this kind of God? Kids, marriage, finances, everything, right? No stress, no anxiety whatsoever. Now, let's be really, very clear about this. It's not that everything is going to go your way. That's not what I'm saying. But that you would know beyond all doubt that God was present and working through you to do his perfect will. Kind of a crazy kind of faith where people keep asking you, are you even aware of what's going on in the world around you? Right? Have you been sleeping a really long time, living under a rock? I mean, what's your deal? Maybe you've met people like this. Maybe you know people like this. And you want them to be as rattled as you are, but you can't shake their faith. Right? Even after you told them all the reasons that they shouldn't have faith, that they should question their faith, they don't get rattled. They don't cave. And it's very, very irritating when people aren't getting rattled like you're getting rattled, right? Because that makes you just a little bit less. Like you want everybody else to be as rattled as you are so you can feel good about being rattled, right? If your faith is faltering, it's comforting to know that everybody else's faith is faltering too, right? It's tough to hear that everyone else has rock-solid faith and you're just tumbling, free-falling, right? 
Did you know that this is where God wants to take you? This is his perfect will for you. Again, whether you are a Christian or far, far from Christ, somebody's making you watch this, somebody's got you sat down on the couch at home watching this, this this is for you. See, this is the story of both the Old and the New Testaments. From generation to revelation, excuse me, from Genesis to revelation, God wants to instill in us a perfect, over-the-top, are-you-kidding-me kind of faith. It's the story of both the Testaments, old and new, and it's also your story. Because in the beginning, it was a lack of faith in God that robbed us of his perfect will for our lives. Think the garden, right? Adam and Eve, they didn't trust. They didn't believe that God had his best plans for them. Think back to the first time that you rebelled against what you knew God wanted you to do, and you did the opposite. And the rest of both stories, the Testaments and your life, is of God trying to win back that faith that somehow got damaged, got broken, for whatever reason. His goal from now until the day you die is to win back that faith that you had in him, or maybe to win a faith that you've never had in him. So the question for this morning is, how does God grow that kind of grace, that kind of faith, that kind of trust and belief? How does he do it? That will be clear. Scripture teaches that faith is a gift, right? We know, all, we know that. I, I, hopefully we all know that. It's not something that you can drum up on your own. Scripture is very, very clear. It's a gift from God. But Scripture is also very, very clear that we have a role to play. We have a part to play in this thing. Right To receive faith, we have to be ready and we have to be receptive to what God wants to do in our lives. And if you'll notice, throughout God's words, throughout his word, people who had eyes to hear, eyes to see and ears to hear, they understood what Jesus was saying and doing. But those who hadn't prepared their hearts to receive him, they couldn't, they wouldn't, and they didn't receive the faith that they needed to see and understand what Jesus was saying and doing. They simply, they, they, didn't, they didn't have the faith. They didn't ask for it. God didn't give it to them. Hmm. Our goal for this morning is that you would maybe discover some ways that God uses to help you receive faith, help you exercise your faith, help you grow in your faith in him. We're calling it faith fertilizers. So while a farmer uses fertilizers like manure, and such, right, to feed the fields. God also uses things like sorrow and pain, trials, temptations, and lots of it, lots of it comes unexpected, right, unannounced. It would be really nice if God would say very, very clearly, like, hey, next week on Tuesday, get ready, because I'm going to rock your world. Something bad's going to happen, so get prayed up, get ready, right, steal yourself, and wouldn't that be great? problem is, right, we're having a great week, and then boom, bombshell just drops right in the middle of our lap, and it just explodes every good thing that had been going on that week. Like, wait a minute, God, we were doing so well. Why'd you have to go and ruin it, right? You're a powerful, loving God. Don't, don't let that stuff happen. But Scripture teaches us that there are things that we can consciously and intentionally do to receive God's gift of grace and faith in him. In both scripture and people's experiences, what we find is five, and and there's probably more, but I'm going to nail down, try to nail down five kind of common themes, right, that lie behind or 
kind of lie before, a little bit before the majority of folks who received the faith that they needed to understand and move forward in their day. But before I get started, I need several caveats, several disclaimers before I share these five themes with you. This list is not a to-do list, right? These themes and ideas, they aren't guarantees. At every step of the way, we can resist and even negate any gains that we've gotten through any of the five or more ways that God uses to draw us back to him, right? We can say no. These five things aren't listed anywhere in Scripture, just like many of the doctrines, like the Trinity and so forth. These are just themes and ideas. They're sprinkled throughout Scripture. But there are things that people did in Scripture that grew their faith. I want to just kind of share a few of these things that people intentionally did to receive that gift that God has for each and every one of us, to believe and understand what his son is talking about. And finally, your experience may differ. Right? I, might, I might list off these five things, and you're sitting there going, nope, <laughs> miss me by a mile, pastor. <laughs> it happens. The list isn't exhaustive, right? These are just simple observations based on Scripture, human experience. Some will resonate more with others than others based on your experience, right? Final warning, all five require a little bit more then just simply say, God, would you please give me that gift? I'm ready to receive it. There's some things that you need to understand if you want to receive faith in Christ. There's going to be risks involved. Not the, the risk isn't that he will love you and save you. or, or that, That's not the risk I'm talking about. The risk I'm talking about is doing things for him and, the, and then the, that, that thing blowing up in your face. Right? It didn't go as well as you had prayed and planned. You ever had something like that happen? Lots of risks, no guarantees. A lot of effort required, a lot of self-discipline. We're going to be talking a little bit about that this morning. A lot of discomfort, sacrificing. Sacrificing is always uncomfortable. It's giving up something that you really want and you don't want to give away. But you do because you love that other person so much that it'll be worth it. And then providence, right? There's got to be lots of God involved, right? We can pray and pray and pray, but unless God's spirit is ready to move, you don't want them to move. Right? I, I, I shared this with somebody. I bought some vehicles. You've all bought some vehicles in your life, you know, maybe expensive things. And I remember when uh, at some point, maybe in our second or third vehicle that we had bought, and I started praying, Lord, I mean, I, I, it was a truck, and it was a Chevy 4 by. I was pretty tickled. I was excited. And then it dawned on me, yeah, I've never had a four-wheel drive vehicle. This could, this could, this could be a mess. Right? So I began to pray, Lord, if this is a bad idea, you know how I love that truck. But Lord, if this is a bad idea, you know how much I love that truck. But Lord, is this a bad idea? Make it fall apart. Please make it fall. Don't let me have that truck. If it's going to mess everything up, I don't want it that bad. Right? So there's got to be lots of God involved. We, we can pray for things, but again, unless God is ready to move, you don't want him to move. So in Matthew 8, we have what many call the faith of the centurion. And strangely enough, contained in this incident is at least all five of the themes that I want to talk about this morning. So I'm going to explain these five theme, themes by way of Matthew chapter 8 and the faith of the centurion. I want to jump right in at Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. If you have your Bibles, you can read from them. We also got it up on the screen to help you out. 
When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Now understand, a centurion is pretty much the cream of the crop of the Roman fighting machine, right? It was kind of non-political. The centurion was the soldier of soldiers. That was his goal in life. That was, that was everything. He commanded 100 men, the centurion. When a centurion told you to do something, you didn't ask questions. Wrong move. Which is very, very, makes this whole thing very, very strange that a Roman centurion, a Gentile, somebody who was really fed up with the Jewish rebellious attitude, that somebody like that, a centurion of the Roman killing machine, would come to a point in his life where he would turn to a Jewish rabbi and say, I need your help. Right? This is just mind-boggling. Early readers of this, this story right here, I mean, they had to just blow their brains. This, this, is just, this, is, this is a fairy tale, right? These kind of things don't happen, but they did. They, they did happen. Again, use your imagination. A hated Roman soldier flanked by a few other very tough-looking soldiers approaches Jesus and the disciples, right? This could be serious trouble. Run and hide would have been the prudent thing to do. Just run, right? Just run. So why would the centurion ask Jesus for help? What I want to share with you this morning is I think it's because this Gentile centurion had ears to hear and eyes to see, right? He heard what Jesus was saying, and he was watching, right? As Jesus backed up his words with healings and signs and miracles. Which leads us, kind of indicates that in the first faith fertilizer is practical teaching. The centurion had received practical teaching. He, he wasn't at synagogue. He wasn't allowed there. He wasn't allowed at temple, right? But he, his job was to watch the crowd and understand if things were getting out of hand. Roman government hated things getting out of hand. So there's no doubt that the centurion had heard the teachings of Jesus. He had just quietly stood probably in the background at the edge of the crowd listening and watching. Practical teaching Practical teaching is simply cha- teachings that change everyday life rather than lofty flights of intellectual calisthenics, right, that don't really change or affect your habits or the way you live your life. But a practical teaching changes the way you live your life. And this Roman centurion had listened to the practical, very practical, very practical. The, the teachings of the Pharisees, not so practical, right? Probably didn't make a lot of sense to the centurion, but these words of Jesus made just tons of sense. For most folks, word of mouth preceded actual teaching and Bible study. Most people that come to Christ, I hear stories of the Gideon Bible in a hotel room, absolutely. But I think more often than not, if you talk with friends and you look at your own life, it was somebody that talked to you and got you thinking. Maybe it had been at an event. Maybe it was a church service. Maybe it was the pastor talking. The practical teaching changed the way you lived your life. 
Again, most folks, word of mouth precedes the actual teaching, but real growth, real growth leap forward as soon as they begin attending church services and Bible studies in small groups and homes. All right, things began to make sense. Many folks have Bibles at home, but they have no idea what's in it other than what people have told them. Many people grow up in church, but they never really understand all the stuff of church. And there's a lot of stuff of church. Practical teachings from the pulpit to the classroom or home group. Absolutely crucial steps for receiving faith or growing in faith or even understanding your faith. So the first of five faith fertilizers. I shouldn't have given them all Fs. Practical teachings. Going back to our passage, Matthew 8, I'm going to start at verse 6. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Understand, Lord is not Lord and Savior, right? The centurion has not gone that far yet. We don't know what his life, how his life unfolded, but at this point, Lord is simply a a term of respect. Maybe he, he could have used the term rabbi, right? So this is not Lord and Savior. Just make sure you're aware of that. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and suffering terribly. You know the disciples, what they're thinking, right? Good. Hope it's contagious and you take it home and infect all of Rome. That's not what Jesus was thinking. That's what the disciples were thinking. You know it, right? You know they misunderstand nearly everything that happens, right? And Jesus, uh, no, don't act that way. No, that's the way the world acts. That's not the way we're going to act. That's not the way we're going to react to situations like this. But Jesus stops and he's intrigued, right? A Roman centurion treating his servant like a beloved. That perked up Jesus, like, whoa, what's going on here? The centurion. Have you ever noticed, and and I I read this and I didn't dig into it real far, but I'm just going to throw this out at you, some fun. Every time Roman centurions are mentioned in the New Testament, they're always the hero of the passage, right? Check all the way through the book of Acts. There's always a Roman soldier, usually a centurion, that steps in, and he's the hero of the story. I think the gospel writers are onto something here, right? The people that were supposed to know were supposed to do the right thing. They didn't. But the people who were listening to Jesus and watching what he was doing, boy, click. Light bulbs went off in their head like, we found it. This is it. We understand God now. So Jesus paused to ask a question, find out a bit more about this centurion asking a Jewish rabbi for help. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Now again, Jesus probably knew that the centurion had been listening and watching, right? That was the centurion's job, right? I think Jesus also recognized that this Gentile was acting on what he had heard Jesus say and what Jesus had been doing. This centurion had put into practice the teachings of Jesus. And you're going to find out in a moment that Jesus was going to blew Jesus' mind, right? The only time in Scripture where we hear that Jesus is amazed at something that we do, it's usually the crowd that's amazed at what Jesus does. This is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus is like, whoa, what have we here? This is something different. 
In other words, this Gentile centurion had received the faith he needed to believe that Jesus could heal his servant because he got personally involved. And I think that struck deeply in Jesus' heart. Personal ministry, an incredible faith fertilizer. Something about serving brings folks close to God, probably quicker and more deeply than just about anything else. I remember when God called me to ministry. I was excited. I was um, confident, but I was scared to death. I, I mean, I, I'm a very confident person anyway, and I thought, well, yeah, I can handle this. But as I got into it, boy, <laughs> it's not like a regular job where you just learn A, B, and C, and you get D. You just, it just doesn't work out that way. I learned to pray really fast, like specific prayers, not like, thank you for my mom and dad. Thank you. You know, my prayers got nitty and gritty, right? Down to the Lord, you need to make this happen or we're both going to look foolish, right? You need to make this happen. Oh, please, please make this happen. And so much growth. Like the day that I said yes, it was the oddest thing. I suddenly, let me put this carefully, God put in me almost an unquenchable desire to know his word and to know his son. It, I was 36. I've been to church nearly every day, every day that the church was open since birth. But never had I taken or understood at that level until I said yes and stepped forward into something kind of scary that's called faith. Let's continue, verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Again, I've been watching you. That's my job. I know for a fact that you can heal my servant from where you stand if you want, right, if you're willing. And that's a crazy amount of faith for a guy who worships other gods. Right, whatever Jesus was saying and doing, boy, it clicked with this centurion. But what I want to do right now, I want to shift our attention away from the centurion to the centurion's servant. How blessed are they, right? They're lying in home at a bed, in a bed. They don't have any idea what's going on in Jerusalem about this rabbi who's just doing crazy things. If history had rolled out without Christ, that servant would surely have died probably within the week, and that would have been it. But here's the crazy part. The servant was healed only because their master, who's an enemy of the Jews, right, had acted on his faith in Jesus, right? How unlikely is that? This is called providential relationships, right? Relationships that feel like they were arranged by God himself, Right? That servant had a providential relationship right, with a centurion who happened to be on the edge of the crowd every time Jesus spoke and did something amazing in the town of Jerusalem. And this chain of events of providential relationships, these relationships that probably should never have happened in a million years. They, just, they make no sense. But God quietly behind the scenes persuades, powerfully persuades, and things happen. Things happen. 
providential relationships, a great faith fertilizer. I know you've heard this illustration before. I'll throw it out in case you haven't heard it. If you can name just two questions, can you name five of the most influential messages you've ever heard? And the second question is, can you name the five most influential people that affected your faith? Which is easier to do, five sermons that affected your faith or five people that affected your faith? More than likely, I'm not going to wait till you raise your hands. More often than not, when I ask people, that it's always people. They can't remember. They can't even remember the sermon I preached that day. But they remember the people. Right? I've got my people. I've got my dad. Right? I've got my, my father-in-law, Chuck Huckel. I've got my pastor that pastored me for 20 years in Northern California, walked me through receiving Christ, or not receiving Christ, but um, my call, walked me through what that call entailed and trained me up, and I owe that so much to John Harris. And then my youth pastor back in Southern California, Mark Pitcher, he's a pastor of Porterville Church of the Nazarene now. When I think of the people, the providential relationships, I'm about 99.999% God was behind those things, right? Mark Pitcher's path or my father-in-law's path was this, and somewhere my path crossed. And God said, I'm going to make something happen right there, right there. I'm going to make sure that these paths cross because this kid needs help, right? I'm going to have his path cross a whole bunch of other paths. Bottom line, God uses human relationships to impact our faith in him. The people around you, why do you think we're pastors? Well, it's like you need to be in church. You need to be in church. You need to be rubbing shoulders with the people who will lift you up, who will talk into your faith, build into your faith. I don't think I've ever heard a story of faith or a return to faith story that didn't involve other people. Like most principles, though, there's an opposite corollary truth. I could ask you a different question. Name someone that undermined your faith in God. It's not very often that I hear stories of lost faith that don't involve other people. A best friend that got involved and you were his best friend, so guess what? Proximity. You got involved. Pay attention to who you're hanging out with. Who you're rubbing shoulders with. Again, the power of a weekly attendance at church. You're rubbing shoulders with people who are trying really hard to do the right thing. Sometimes they fail, and that's good to see, to see how they handle it, to see how a mature Christian handles being an idiot. People just don't grow in their faith or lose their faith all by themselves. Again, there's the Gideon stories. But more often than not, right, there's a phrase, oh, I doubt if I remember it. The people you've met are sometimes your greatest regret. Don't know who said that. Jumped in my head there, so I thought I'd let you have it. I'm going to continue in verse 9. It says this, for I myself am a man under authority. This is the centurion speaking to Jesus. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Again, I've been watching you, Jesus, and we're very similar, right? People do, as I say, because I have the might of Rome behind me, and people obey me, right? You say the word, and nature obeys you. You must be under the authority of something or someone with tremendous power, and I recognize that. 
right? This is a, I recognize that kind of power. Such power that I believe you can heal long distance. Just say the word and it'll be done. I understand that kind of authority. In the same way that discipline had made the Roman army as deadly as it was, spiritual disciplines make the Christian as powerful and as effective as God needs us to be. Third, or fourth, excuse me, faith fertilizer, private disciplines. You know, you know what they are, tithing, personal Bible study, church involvement, prayer, fasting, daily devotions, right? The list can go on, daily disciplines. All these things prepare our hearts and minds to not only recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit, but also to receive and understand and act on that faith. I want to finish off verses 10 through 13. It says this, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Again, the only time Jesus has ever been amazed is something that we do. And it was a centurion, Roman, Gentile. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And, and this must have stung, right? If you were Jewish in the crowd, it was like, ouch, <laughs> that's going to leave a mark. Again, key to this passage, Jesus was amazed at the man's faith and confidence in him, in Jesus' goodness. I think Jesus just kind of compared. He had seen so many crowds who weren't hearing and weren't seeing. Jewish crowds, the people he expected and deeply wanted to hear and understand what he had to say, but they weren't. And then a Gentile comes along, and Jesus, he's just excited. It's like, maybe, this, maybe, maybe something's getting through. Clearly, somebody understood my words. Jesus turns to his disciples, says this, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subject of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, the Gentiles, like the Roman centurion, are going to enjoy the wedding feast of the king and the chosen people who chose not to see, they chose not to prepare their hearts or their minds to hear or understand. They're not going to be at the banquet. Right? They excluded themselves. And then verse 13, then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would be. And his servant was healed at that very moment. And as a whole, this whole incident recorded by Matthew illustrates a, a, an incredible final way I want to share with you this morning that God uses to open our ears, open our eyes to what he's doing. It's pivotal circumstances, right? Maybe a death, a marriage, childbirth, move to a new city, a new job, new experience. I hear over and over and over again, the thing that got our attention was we were going through a really difficult time. And everything that we had tried seemed to be dead ends. And we're willing to try anything at this point. Tell me about Jesus. Nothing else is, has worked. Nothing else has helped. I'm ready to hear about Jesus. And if you look at maybe, maybe your life, the lives of people you know, you might recognize the power of the person who steps in 
when somebody is going through a pivotal circumstance, steps in in love, offers them a hand, a lift up. Even picking up a new spiritual habit for the first time. Kind of be life-altering. Again, these things aren't necessarily a to-do list. Just want to make that very, very clear here. I mean, how does one plan for a pivotal circumstance, right? It would be nice if God said, hey, you know, Friday at 2 o'clock, be ready, but he doesn't do that. But we can place ourselves in environments that increase the odds, right, of these things happening, church, each week, camps, mission trips, conferences, service projects, visiting the sick, visiting prisoners, the list is endless. I want to close by reading James 1, verses 2 through 4. Listen to this. This was read earlier. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And the fact of the matter is that all five of the means of grace, and that's really what we've been talking about, these five faith fertilizers are are means of grace, avenues of faith, ways that God gives us his grace. All five of them that we've been looking at this morning are ways that God both, both uses to receive faith, to help us receive faith, to help us grow in our faith, but also he uses to test our faith. Providential relationships, pivotal circumstances, They come flying at him, and and he uses those circumstances to test us. And again, this isn't like a a pass-fail kind of test like in school, right? This is somewhat more along the lines of of a progress report, right? How well have you been listening? How well have you been serving? How well have you been engaging others, practicing private disciplines, or simply being present in the life of the church, both good or bad? How are you doing? Are you producing good fruit? When I was a youth pastor, I don't know who gave it to me, but it struck me. And so at the beginning of every youth night, teens would gather around their tables, and the table leader would kind of lead the different groups. And the first thing that we would do was called checking our progress. And the table leader would ask the teens, so how'd you do this week? And it was always a table with their friends, right? We didn't The way I was doing it, we didn't force them into a table. So each table was filled with close friends, and they were able to share with each other. Boy, I blew it this week, (laughs) or I did really well this week. I I prayed, right? I I prayed on Wednesday. That's one day more than I prayed last week. (laughs) And so check your progress. So this is what I want to do this morning. You've been handed out, and and David, can you start handing those out if people haven't gotten them? The staff, we've been looking at ways that we can evaluate both ourselves as pastors and evaluate how we're doing in church. And what the teens are passing out, they're going to pass out two different colors of the same document, right? Two, same document, two different colors. And what we'd like to ask you to do is to take a few minutes right now. If you have a pen or pencil, if you don't, you might need to take it home and bring it back. I'm not sure, but it would really help us if you took one of those home and spent some time with there's 12 questions. It's a very simple self-evaluation. How am I doing? Am I producing any fruit? And also what this will do for the pastors, if you would all please participate in this, we want to ask you, don't put your name on it. 
Would you drop one of those into the offering plate? Let's choose a color. I don't know what colors they are. Don't show me. I don't know. I'm colorblind. Orange. Okay, let's turn in the orange one. And blue was the other? <laughs> She's holding up the... <laughs> um, take the other one home. Here's what I want you to do with the other one. I, I need you to turn one of them in, the orange one, today, if possible. There's only 12 questions. We'll give you a minute. It's only quarter after. We've got a solid 15 minutes left here. And what this is going to do, this is going to help you check your progress. And when you turn in that one... It's going to help us pastors find out where are we missing, right? What do we need to pay more attention to? Where are people in our congregation in this time and place, where are they struggling? All right, so we don't want you to think too deeply and hard. This kind of be really kind of off the top of your head kind of thing. And ideally, about quarterly, we're going to do this again. So we want you to keep one of them at home and spend some time with it. Put it up on your mirror. Put it up on your refrigerator. Maybe daily, part of your daily devotions, ask yourself these 12 questions. How am I doing? And beside each question, there's a little passage, a little verse there to let you know we didn't just pull these out of a hat. These are from Scripture. Okay, I'm going to give you a few minutes, and David's going to come up, um, and, and you're going to go ahead and continue to answer these questions and pay sort of attention to David. I know how that works. <laughs> come on up, David. Let me, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Um, and I just pray, Father, that through this tool, that, that we would know a little bit more about where we're at, where we need to do some work. Right, where, where can we say we did well? And that, that's okay. Father, help us be honest with these evaluations. Father, help us to use these as, as, a, as a tool to gauge our growth, to not just idle along and assume that things are happening because in general they don't. In fact, when we're in cruise, we tend to go backwards. So, Father, I just pray that you would use these evaluations to help this congregation, to help these pastors be better at what we're to be doing, to be more faithful. Father, thank you for everything you've done this morning and that you're planning on doing and that you've been at work doing. In your name we pray. Amen.